Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This episode of Garden DC, we're joined by Certified Master Gardener Linda Jones. She's the owner of Elements of Nature, Botanicals, and Pharmaceuticals Urban Farm in Clinton, Maryland. Welcome, Linda. Hi, Kathy. Nice to be here, and thanks for the invite. Great to have you. So, followers of Washington Gardener Magazine and attendees of our annual seed exchanges would be familiar with Linda because she has spoken a few times at the seed exchanges, right? Yes. And her topics have been obviously seed related and seed collecting and I think a, once on herbs maybe, but we did a companion planting as well. Companion planting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that the most popular talk though you gave was on winter sowing. So I definitely wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about that technique. Okay. All right. I'm ready to go. <laughs> well, before we dive into everything about winter sowing, I want to talk a little bit about you and um, talk about elements of nature. So it's your your side name for it is botanicals and pharmaceuticals farm with yes. an F, not a yes. PH. Yes. Uh, urban farm. So can you define pharmaceuticals for us? For me, pharmaceuticals is a group of products that are made from herbs and other botanical flowers that can be used as herbal remedies. You can use them in your like lotions and soaps and anything that can help the body inside and out. So it's going to have some kind of a health benefit to it. I don't um, promote uh, saying it has, it cures this or that. It's just something that's good for your skin, good for your insides and something that'll help you to, you know, have a better health outlook long-term if you use those types of uh, products. So it's pharmaceuticals, it's from the farm. From straight from organically grown and sustainably harvested uh, herbs and flowers. Hmm, great. And these are all topical, um, yeah, top, applications, yeah, topical. correct? Mm-hmm. Topical. And then with the, you know, the teas and all of those, those are internal. So topical and internal. Okay. Oh, so you do have teas and, and tinctures yes. and things. Yes. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I was familiar with your soaps and other things, but I didn't, didn't know that side of it. Oh, yes. Great. And do you, um, you obviously grow the ingredients for them and do you package them yourself and you sell them via your website? I grow them, I package them and I uh, have them on my site. Most of the, my herbs that I use, I grow myself. I do have some that um, I do um, purchase from my, my, um, my uh, organic, I have a co-op that I'm a member of and they grow sustainably organic uh, products as well. So I purchased the ones that I can't grow here that are hard to grow. I purchased those from the co-op and it's a natural food co-op. So so the products are good. And what are those that you find hard to, to grow in our area? For those listeners who aren't familiar 
with Garden DC, we mainly cover the the mid-Atlantic U.S. from like New Jersey through North Carolina. Okay. Well, some of the tropicals that I use, like the hibiscus, that's kind of difficult to grow in this area. I've grown it to a certain point, but it's very difficult to grow in my uh, particular area here. And I also use uh, like lemon verbena. That's an herb that's kind of hard to grow. It's not winter hardy, but I can get it to a certain um, point and then it just kind of stops producing. So those are some of the the herbs that I do get from other from, from my co-op that I cannot grow here uh, sustainably and get any type of volume out of them. Hmm. Yeah, that's what, what I was going to ask next is that I'm sure you could grow a pot of, say, the lemon verbena, but maybe right. not enough that you would need for some serious processing. Correct. Yeah, it's I get some and it's it's doable. I can use it uh, for the teas and I also do infusions for the soaps and lotions, but it's not a enough to, you know, produce a whole line of things just on its own. I have to get some that are already pre, pre-grown from another um, grower. Now, you recently retired from your main job, I guess you would call it, Yes. your, your previous life. So now you're devoting yourself full time to this? Pretty much. Um, when I was working, I was uh, an instructor for about 25 years on various topics throughout. And I taught all audiences of people. And I, I brought that into this uh, phase of my life to continue teaching because that's one of the things I really like to do is to teach and to help people grow and to just, you know, just share what I have to others so that they may be able to better their lives in some way or the other. So teaching is one of my things that I brought over and I'll continue to do that as long as I can. Great. And so now you're pretty much a solopreneur, right? That you are the chief bottle washer and everything for your business. I'm it. Um, This (laughs) year was was really, really hard because I was just starting out with the urban farm and just the work that had to be done to get it to actually a phase where I could say I could grow something in mass. Very difficult because, you know, you couldn't get the help you needed uh, safely. So I, I ended up, you know, being my own carpenter my own picker, my own grower, <laughs> everything. I had to do pretty much everything that from the putting the base down for the soil, building the boxes, planting the boxes, creating uh, additional growing spaces, transplanting from area to area, but got a lot of exercise. <laughs> I can imagine. And oh, so yeah. this is a, a tough year to get launched during 2020 yeah Yeah. so with all the spring garden festivals that you would normally have a booth at to sell things being canceled and a lot of the fall craft shows um how are you marketing your products uh online and then uh word of mouth and i have uh i had a small csa this summer for some for herbs and i grew a lot of tomatoes and uh the tomatoes were like a staple in the little small um, CSA package that I had and I had um, herbs in there and also had plants that were in there and I had plant sales uh, by uh, appointment only and I was able to sell some things over my website as well and you know it was just the right amount of, of um, I guess marketing I needed for right now based upon 
the limitations that I had. I didn't want to overpromise and underdeliver. So I just kind of kept it kind of low key and just plotted along to see how things were going. And then I had two two plant sales towards the end of the season where I had a lot of plants that I normally would have sold earlier in the year. I went ahead and had two uh, on-site uh, sales and I was able to, to reduce my inventory by tons of flowers that were ready to go to somebody else's house. <laughs> that's great. And that's a good idea to do the appointment only. And I'm sure your oh, yeah. sales went well because oh, yeah. I know our own garden club sale, we sold out. Uh, we thought we were going to be going for a week with appointments yes. and mm-hmm. we basically sold out the first day. It was crazy. Oh yeah. And people, people want to get out to do something besides going to some crowded stores, uh, looking for things that they may not have. So it was a perfect opportunity for people to get out and especially uh, support the small businesses in the areas because uh, going into the big boxes and going in those places where it's really crowded, um, I wasn't too in- enthused about going out to bigger places, you know, even when I needed things. So to go buy plants at a big store where it's crowded and a lot of people, I appreciate the people who did uh, come by. And some came by twice at- to both sales. So that was very good. And it's nice to have the community support. So you are an urban farm, meaning you're mm-hmm. close by your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Correct. How do your neighbors react to what you're selling and doing? Actually, because I'm kind of like subtle and you don't know I'm here, uh, they don't know it. I mean, I haven't like broadcasted it to, to the <laughs> neighborhood yet because of the, you know, because of COVID and the traffic that I might get. So People know my neighbors, you know, in the direct vicinity, they know. And uh, I have some neighborhood uh, kids that that I let them volunteer from time to time. They'll come up and I'll give them a box of seeds or something they want to sort out, you know, for upcoming events and things like that. So they want to do some volunteer hours. I'll set a table up for them and give them the materials and walk away and just let them do the work. So they know, uh, like I said, I'll do more internal community broadcasting once uh, COVID is over and then I can anticipate uh, more people coming over. But right now it's just the right amount of, uh, I guess, marketing and, and uh, communication that needs to be done just in this time period. Hmm. Yeah. And keeping it slow and building up slowly is the way to go, I think. Right. And so you mentioned the neighborhood kids coming Mm -hmm. by to help out and sort seeds. Mm-hmm. How about your childhood? Were you always into gardening? Did you always have dirt under your fingernails? Pretty much. Some was involuntary, <laughs> especially when I was really, really young. So, you know, you have to help in the garden, even if you didn't want to. So we had a partial and very, maybe about a half an acre or a little bit more where we had a family uh, garden and we grew everything uh, down in the southern area down in Mississippi. And we, just as most of the kids that did grow up in that era, in that time, in that place, they everybody had a garden and all the, the, the kids uh, were required to actually help in the garden. So I learned a lot, not because um, I was really in the garden then, but it set the stage for things that I would do later in life with the gardening because that's really started just going full force about 10 years ago but I had been gardening for years but just the magnitude of it wasn't as much as it was 
after I took the Master Gardener program in 2010 and that kind of set the stage for some other things that I wanted to do so uh, that training helped me to see a lot more from the the business side of it as far as what I could grow and you know some of the the communication communications that I was having with some of the other master gardeners and just working around mass plantings and doing volunteer work and going to a lot of different uh, gardens and volunteering there and working and learning alongside people who had been you know doing a lot of things here on the east coast so I was able to pick up a lot of tips from seasoned gardeners who were in all walks of life. I took that and just learned and learned and learned. And I, as I started to do my business plan for Elements of Nature, I considered uh, what are the things that I really, really wanted to do uh, with gardening and with farming or whatever I was going to do later. But it all kind of panned out because I was just building my knowledge base and just doing things and not just seeing them be done and not participating in it. So I got a good bit of hands-on training, book training, just training, just in passing, just learning different things about all types of plants. So that helped me to just really be, have a comprehensive knowledge of vegetables, herbs, flowers. I don't do a lot of fruit uh, only because I have problems with squirrels and stuff in my yard. So I don't want to, you know, invite them to anything else in my yard. So that's um that's about how how much uh gardening has been an influence in my life. I just kinda I just like hands in the dirt, just teaching and just doing things. I like to see things grow from seed especially. So, you know, that's why I'm in so much into seeds and winter sowing and things like that. It just you can plant a seed in the winter and Mother Nature takes over. So doing that helps me to just grow a lot more things than I normally would have grown if I tried to do the indoor sewing, which I really don't do because I don't have the amount of indoor space to actually do that. Well, it sounds like you're a natural at nurturing and bringing things to life. Did oh, you yeah. always grow from seed or did you just come into that lately? Um, I always tried to grow from seed first. And I had lots of failures uh, when I first started and I didn't exactly know what I was doing. Um, and then I would watch what nature was doing. And I would say, okay, if this seed drops this time of the year, nobody bothers it. And the next year it's gonna come back in that same spot. Uh, that's a miracle in itself. So what, it was like in 2009 or 10, when we had that first big snowmageddon, I was so bored inside and I just started looking in seed catalogs and all kinds of things. And I was like, oh, I saw something on winter sewing. And I started just picking up little pieces of information on that. And then I tried it myself. And that was a, that was the beginning of my winter sewing journey forever. So it's just learning those techniques and just seeing how true it is that hmm. winter sewing is following what Mother Nature does and we don't have to really do anything except for set the stage for the growth and the growth will take care of itself. Yeah, that's a good point. If you think about uh, starting seeds under grow lights indoors is not exactly a natural process. Like right. seeds just don't fall into some cave somewhere with a heat lamp and a, a fan or something and then a grow light over them. But I guess oh, yeah. we 
we do the indoor starting because we're impatient and we want to get a few more weeks out of the season. And that's mainly say for the um, Solanacea, the tomato family, the tomatoes and peppers that we want to get started our plants six to eight weeks then before mother nature might want to get them started outside so we can Mm -hmm. start harvesting them even earlier. And obviously different parts of the country uh, would have different timing and some places might not need to even do the indoor sowing or the winter sowing technique either but Mm -hmm. to get a jump on the growing season. And certainly you and I have both experienced other um, experienced gardeners when you've left a tomato that you thought you cleaned out your plot and then it goes to seed and that grows just as fine and comes up and makes just as many fruit and uh, about the same time as the plants that we babied and grew by other methods. So it's, I think it's really just our impatience with some of the indoor seed starting. I prefer direct sowing mostly myself. Oh yeah. Tomatoes are kind of finicky. Um, but you can always, you can almost always get tomato plants every year without planting them. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed, mm-hmm. um, it was like two, about three years ago, I was in my winter sowing projects. I just had some tomato seeds, a pack, and I threw them in a, a five gallon bucket of soil and I just left them. And then maybe a month later, the bucket was full of transplants. I did not do a thing. I didn't even cover it. I just left it outside. It was like around late February. And I I, I purposely didn't cover it just to see if it could take the the weather. And it did. It was no problem at all. And I got, I could guarantee you, it was probably maybe about 500 seedlings in there. I just took plugs out and gave them away to people. Because mm-hmm. I, I know it was. I couldn't plant that many tomatoes, even if I wanted to. But, you know, you don't have to do a lot with with outdoor winter sowing. It's um, it's fairly easy. You just can't overdo it. Um, and when I stopped doing indoor seats was maybe a couple of years before that, I had gone to, I think, Chicago. And I had planted some, I think it was some squash or something inside. And I forgot that I had them over by the window. And within a week's time, since it wasn't getting any light, it was just getting the indoor heat. I came back, I had a squash. The legs were so long on them, it was probably almost a foot long. And this was (laughs) one week. And I was like, compost, this will be. So, you know, you have to be very, very diligent and on it when you're doing indoor seeds. So especially when, you know, the way the temperature changes back and forth, you just, I just, I just like winter sowing. Um, I don't think I'll go back to indoor sowing. I, things that I think I may have to sow indoors, I'll probably purchase from somebody else. <laughs> yeah. So true that you do have to babysit your, the indoor sowing. You just can't yeah. go away for a week's vacation. No, no you can't. <laughs> Or, yeah. And you definitely need to make sure that they stay watered and yes. you turn them and they will get very leggy if you let them. And the um, mold too, the uh, oh yeah. the damping the, off. Damping off disease as well. Yeah, so those are, discouragement. are a lot of drawbacks to indoor sowing besides being labor intensive. So let's turn to winter sowing. So it's okay. almost sounds like you set it and forget it. Pretty um, much. So, yeah. How do you get started on it? I basically find 
the containers that I want to use. I find the seeds, I find the containers, and I find the soils. The soils that I use, I used to try uh, seed starting mix, but that doesn't quite work with outdoor water sowing for me. I rather use the, I use the organic potting soil. And I find my containers. I use milk gallons uh, jugs. I use uh, salad bowls with the high dome tops on them, the plastic ones. I use five-gallon buckets. Those are my favorite because I can get more in those buckets than I can in the um, hmm. in the milk gallon jugs. Um, and with the, with the five-gallon buckets, do they come with a lid, or how do you have something over them? I put. Um, I have a little. I put like sticks around the size of the bucket and mm-hmm. then I cover it with plastic and then I tie, uh-huh. put some duct tape around it. Okay. So I, I lift it up. So when it starts to grow up, it, it won't get uh, tampered by the, when it hits the top and tries to lean over. So I leave it enough room for enough top growth to grow before it's time to transplant it out. Mm-hmm. And then I use the five gallon. I use, I have two gallon buckets that I use as well. And uh, those work for some of the things that I don't want a lot of. But the five-gallon buckets I use for the things that I know I'll need a lot of, of uh, seedlings for. And then I can also use uh, the trays, the black uh, trays with the the, the uh, pots, the little plugs that you make plugs out of. I can use that, that as well. And when I put the soil in there, I cover it with a big plastic tub and put something over it to keep um, keep the keep it from being blown over. So those are some of the three major ways I use it. And then the seeds are a variety of seeds. I, I try to get the ones that are the hard-coated seeds work best because you don't really need to work with those. I use, um, let's see, nasturtium is one that's kind of difficult to grow if uh, you can't get that seed coat to break. Violas are good. I use um, a lot of the lettuces, but I try to I plant those a little bit later in the year. And then the, the herb seeds that tend to do best are the dills, the chamomiles, the parsley, uh, coriander, fennel, and things like that. So once I get my setup going, I have bucket a bucket of each one that I use. And then as they the, the transplants start to get bigger, I take them out and transplant them in, either in the ground or I have uh, other pots that I can put them in to put them away so they can get some more root growth on them. But... They tend to grow very well, and it's an easy process when I get ready to actually take the whole thing and redo it. I just dump the soil back into the, the planting bed and then just use it to plant the, the seedlings in, or I find another uh, pot to put them in. Hmm. And is it too early to start winter sowing? Do you wait till after the new year, or what time do you usually start? The best time, the best, the recommended time is anytime after the winter solstice, which is like around December 21st, 22nd. Anytime after that, because once the winter solstice uh, comes around, the heat that uh, would generally kill off uh, anything or promote, not kill off, I'm sorry, that will promote the growth of seedlings that are planted outside, it um, kind of stops and then it the plant would just sit there and just wait for the next phase of when they're supposed to take their next step. But if you plant them too early in the season, what'll happen, they won't, they will grow, they will sprout, but the cold weather will kill them. Hmm. 
And for our winters, which have been kind of mild here in the mid Atlantic, Mm -hmm. I know other areas when they do winter sowing, they have theirs maybe sitting out on an open picnic table. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've seen pictures of them covered with snow and we don't really get that snow coverage. So is there something else you do to insulate them from the, the freeze thaw or the, the big changes we get in our temperatures? Like one day in January, it can be almost 60 and then the next Mm -hmm. it can be 20. I pretty much just leave them alone. As long as they're getting the, the air circulation inside that little dome, and they're getting uh, a little moisture in there to keep the, the you know, the greenhouse effect going. I leave them alone. I rarely had to move anything uh, to make amends for any of the changes in the weather. I just kind of leave them alone. And I watch them. If something looks like it's not quite right, I might put a little bit of water in there. But normally I don't really move anything around to uh, accommodate anything because those days when we do get the warmer weather in the winter, they don't last uh, no more than one or two days. And based upon where you have your plants, it's not going to get too hot or hot enough to uh, scorch the seedlings. So just just watch them and see what's going on. You might have to lift the lid up maybe for a couple of hours or something, but don't do it when it's uh, when the sun is like... Uh, you know, like 12 o'clock, wait until it goes, the shade part comes back on your, wherever you have your plants sitting. But you generally need your plants up against like a wall or like somewhere covered where you don't have any foot traffic, you don't have any high wind or anything like that. Then that helps to keep your, your pots in order. You don't get anything knocked over or blown over. And it pretty much will, you know, just take care of itself. Now, do you have say squirrels <laughs> just gonna uh, yeah. say that i would think that squirrels would get into anything that i set out do they are they curious do they up in some of your buckets or try to get in there no because what normally if i have something sitting sitting out i'll have a brick on top of it like a heavy brick I, and i have these uh, little wire trays that i use uh like the little wire it's like a not a two by two tray, little long tray that I put on top of the ceiling sometimes if they're in small enough buckets, but um, I make sure it's heavy enough so squirrel can't knock it off. And generally they kind of stay away. They dig in pots and different things if you have them open, but normally if something is covered up, they generally don't mess with mine. Now I can't speak for everybody because squirrels are different in different areas, but the squirrels I have, they're kind of kind of quirky and they kind of go for that low-hanging fruit and they they're not going to try to lift the brick off of the thing mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i guess lazy is probably a good word if it's, yeah. if it's easily accessible they will make mischief but oh, yeah. maybe if they're not familiar with it they won't oh yeah yeah they're, they're quite busy but i don't see as many this time of the year but they're out there they come around and do little things and go hide in their nest up in the tree somewhere <laughs> Now for the winter sowing, um, do you put drainage in the containers? Yeah, you definitely need drainage. You don't want it to hold water at all. You you want it to do exactly uh, or mimic exactly what happens just in open planting areas. Your drainage is at the bottom. That's your you know your bottom layer of your soil. So it's going to drain off as the water comes to the top. 
it'll retain some and it'll, some will go to the bottom. If it's excess, it'll definitely go out really quick. And the top, the holes that you're going to put in the top aren't uh, that tiny. So you need to have enough so the water can actually get in there, but not enough where the water will get in there and drown out your seeds. So just kind of punch it like a little, I wouldn't say about the size of your finger. That's a little bit too big, but just a little hole, like a hole punch, a little puncher. Or you can stick a um, end of a screwdriver in there and try to get a little hole or a screw um, to get little holes all around the top so that the water goes in. It humidifies the plant and it creates, again, that greenhouse effect that's going to hold on to what it needs and get rid of what it doesn't. And so for the milk jugs that I, I see a lot of people using for mm -hmm. winter sowing, you, you would keep the cap off. You wouldn't necessarily keep that on, correct? You can keep the cap on, but you need to punch a whole couple of big holes in the top so that water can get in. I keep my top on only because, say, if, for instance, if a big rain came through and it's sitting at the right angle, it will flood it out. So I could put the top on it and leave a put punch holes in there enough to let enough little water get in there and not overwhelm the, the container. But you have holes in the top and the bottom of that milk jug. Mm -hmm. Good point, because we did have a rain uh, last week where we got two inches. Oh, yeah. Buckets sitting with a couple inches of water. And yeah, that would have flooded out anything I would have had sitting out there. Oh, yeah. Um, and the other question I had about the milk jugs was they, they come in translucent or mm -hmm. clear. Um, do you recommend the more opaque containers? Either one is fine because even though um, it's not totally clear, it still gets the job done. And when you, it's just like when you use those salad uh, containers, they're totally clear and they don't um, discourage any heat from getting in there or light from getting in there. And the translucent ones are the same way. It's They get light, they get enough light, but because the uh, one is, totally clear and then other one isn't clear it won't affect the, the quality of the growth of the seedlings inside the container mm -hmm. it's it's low light but still low. enough light mm -hmm. it sounds like right mm -hmm. and you would be putting it outside in a full sun situation correct mm -hmm. yeah full sun is, is fine it and and because it's in full sun this time of the year it's not going to scorch and you will get the growth that you need in the time that you need it. And again, if you notice anything weird going on, because say if you put something up against a fence and you have a south facing uh, area that you have it in, in the evenings, it's going to get a little warmer than it will be in the morning. So because of that, if you think your seeds are going to overheat or something, just put a few more holes in the top to let more air circulate to get some of the heat out. But generally, if you put maybe like three or four or five holes around the whole container, that should be enough to maintain the, the temperature that you'll need to have a healthy growth of seedlings inside your container. And we talked about damping off being a problem oh, yeah. for mold and mildew for indoor seed starting. Is that any concern for the winter sowing? I haven't seen any. Haven't seen any since I've been doing it. And if someone happens to see that, um, and if it's like just starting, just do what you would do with the indoor seedlings. Just spray. Sometimes there's a little mixture 
little homemade mixture you can put on it to kill it off. Or just take a spoon and just take that part out and then just wash to see if there's anything else that's going to happen. Because with the dabbing off, it's just because of the it's too much water or too much, um, not enough air circulating to move things out. So with the winter sewing, you definitely shouldn't have that problem. And obviously you want to check for disease every few days, but how often do you check on your winter sewing containers? You're not out there every day, correct? I check maybe once a week. And it depends on what how the weather is that particular week. Um, if it's if it's snowing and nothing's going on, I have it set over there in the corner and it's good, but I don't really worry too much. I may check it maybe like once a week when I first put it out there just to make sure nothing's knocking stuff over where I may not be able to get out there every day to um, see what's going on. But when the when the, the cold wintry weather sits in, you can pretty much just relax and just know that you don't have to do anything until it thaws out. And then you can go check on it, make sure everything's still intact. But you don't have that that constant maintenance issue that to think about when you have that winter sewing project going on. It's just the simplest, most efficient way I know to get things off to a very good start with mm-hmm. minimal effort. Yeah, and I, I like that it's low effort and you know, mm-hmm. almost a lazy man's way of seed starting oh yeah i like lazy sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yeah especially in the winter months you don't want to have to go out there every day oh, or no. you, know, you want to be cozy inside and yeah. and enjoying some of your catalogs and and other things that you can do in the winter time well i was oh, going to yes. ask also about say you have a, a lineup of either the two liter soda bottles or the, mm-hmm. the milk cartons um do you label them by just writing on marker on the outside or how do you differentiate what seed is in which container? I do a double labeling process because sometimes uh, the rain will wash things off the outside, but not generally. If you get one of those outdoor markers, it has to be outdoor. You can't use a regular uh, Sharpies. You need the one that's specifically for outdoor. And I also do a duct tape labeling inside the container. Uh, I write the name of the the plant on the inside, put it on on the inside on a piece of duct tape and just seal it up. And you know from the outside what it is and from the inside. So if that outside gets compromised, then you still know what your seeds are, your seedlings are in that container. Because a lot of times when we plant outside, we forget <laughs> what we planted. And you have to wait until the actual thing, actual flowers before you know if it's a, okay, I think this is a weed, but it it might be a new plant that the bird dropped in or something. So you have to be very careful when you start pulling up stuff, especially that you planted outside because you didn't put a label on it and you didn't have it in a container. And now you're stuck waiting to, for it to, uh, to actually grow so you can actually see what it is. But when you do the winter sewing, you if you double label your things, you shouldn't have a problem. Yeah, I can imagine <laughs> that will help a lot, especially starting. Oh yes. And then um, for what you can winter sew, I've heard some people say everything, and then other people say you shouldn't do tropicals or or summer um, favoring like crops. So that you would tend to do more the cool season crops yeah. and also cool season annuals. Do you agree? I agree. And some of the ones that are very good, 
for winter sowing, you, you go with your vegetables, your warm weather vegetables like your squash and your beans and your okra and um, say for instance cucumbers. Those are definitely not winter sowing products um, projects. Don't waste your time. You won't get a thing. The only thing that might uh, come up in the squash family would be a winter squash that you can winter sow. But the rest of the summer vegetables, just wait until um, early spring to either do your transplants outside, uh, do your, your seed starting outside, or you can wait and just put it straight in the ground. But waste you will be wasting your time if you try to plant cucumbers in winter sowing projects. You can plant like arugula, beets, broccoli rob, your carrots, your root vegetables, collards. Uh, you can start those. And most people use collards now for like uh, baby greens and the um, microgreens. And you got your kale, you got mescaline and all those types of things that you can plant. And then, uh, let's see, turnips, your peas, radish is always something that you can plant in the winter. And again, the winter squash is one of the only squash family members that you can consider planting uh, using winter sowing. Mm -hmm. And then there are a host of flowers as well. Uh, you got your calendulas, a lot of the herbs. Um, four o'clocks are good, cosmos, sunflowers, um, cleome. Anything that's going to drop a seed in the fall would be a good candidate uh, for winter sowing. Anything that has a name weed and it is a good uh, candidate for winter sowing. So, and when you, if you buy seeds, you look at the packet and make sure you, you follow the instructions because it will tell you, uh, if it says you can start indoors six to eight weeks before, uh, the first frost or whatever, those are some of the, the seeds that you can use. But as far as the vegetables, the hot summer vegetables, don't try those. I wouldn't recommend those at all. Yeah, it sounds like almost anything that um, would be uh, among our native plants as well, or that on the seed packet, you might see the words cold stratification. Yes, cold stratification. So that means exposure to winter type temps are needed for that seed to germinate. And yes. not mm -hmm. all seeds that need that, but a lot of seeds do need to go through that. It's a freeze-thaw period, freeze-thaw period, and because a seed is not going to uh, germinate until that seed coat gets broken and the winter sowing and winter the winter weather helps that seed coat to kind of soften up and get to the point where it can actually break open and then that's when your flower comes and that's how mother nature does it the next thing i was going to ask about was winter sowing with perennials so a lot of us don't start our perennials from seeds because it mm -hmm. is so hard oh, yeah. um, it takes so long to get some of those mm -hmm. perennials going oh yeah um, but it sounds like winter sowing is ideal for perennials. It is. It's the it's the best thing you could do. And with with perennials, because they're they are perennials and they're gonna last for years and years and years to come, they they're a little bit slower to get started, but that's because they're trying to get that root structure in place to support the bigger plants. Because the annuals, even though some annuals can get gigantic as well. The perennials are putting down the roots to stay. The annuals are just going through that life cycle through one season, and then they go back to seed. But with perennials, they're the best things you can have. And if you have a perennial that self-seeds, I have the, the pestamon is one of the better ones that I have. Pestamon, the balsam, 
balsam may be a annual, but the pestilons yeah, are very good. Self-seed. The, the balsam does self-seed around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you have um, some of the, the, um, the woodland phloxes. They're good. The obedient plant, they're perennials. They drop seed, but they spread as well. So you get double a double feature from some of those perennials that are self-seeding because not only are they keeping what they have, in the ground for the next season they're dropping seeds to start more plants so if you go out early like with the black-eyed susans for instance if you go out in the fall and save some of your seeds for black-eyed susans and your cone flowers and just drop them in the new spot where you want them you have another spot of cone flower and black-eyed susan for the next year without moving or transplanting or digging up what you already have mm-hmm. and another um probably category that works really well for winter sowing are the biennials like oh, yeah. hollyhocks or things oh, yeah. that you might have to wait a whole extra season or another oh, half yeah. season until you get to see something out of it so i would think that that would be a great category to start for, with the winter sowing technique and the balloon flower is another one too uh that one uh it takes a while to get started um and it drops you have to take those seeds off. They will drop seeds around the plant, but it's better off if you take those and put those someplace else because they get rather big if you let them stay in the one place. But they're they come they're biannual as well. Well, it sounds like I'm going to have to spend the winter drinking a lot of milk and soda oh, yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. to save or, up these containers. Yeah. Or call your friends and say, hey. If you, mm-hmm. if you have sodas, I don't drink soda, so that's my problem with the with those jugs. But I find enough other uh, buckets and things that I, I go to the farmer's market quite often and they have the food service uh, buckets and they, you know, they're relatively cheap. So I I've, I think I have way too many, but I've been collecting them all summer. So I have fair amount, a fair amount of them now. And that's what I'll start my uh, project in. I've already prepped the uh, buckets, put the holes in the tops, and I found this neat little top that I can put on them um, to keep the, you know, the the dome. It's already a little plastic thing, looks just like the dome. I just saw it at a home improvement store, and I was like, oh, that'll work. So that's what I'm going to use for the dome for the smaller ones. But for the big ones, I'm going to set up that little operation where I use the plastic on the top and I make the little circle with the plastic and punch holes in there and that will suffice for the the greenhouse dome. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what we're doing is creating these little mini unheated greenhouses out in your garden for Mm -hmm. each for its own little set of seeds um, so that each one is individually controlled temperature or climate inside by by keeping up on the watering or adjusting the amount of holes or the exposure of it. So Mm -hmm. if you think of it, it's just like a little series of mini greenhouses. Yep. That's all it is. And the good part about it is you can do this again next year and use your same containers, just wash them out. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good tip to, to definitely, you know, compost what's in there, but clean them out because you wouldn't want diseases carried from year to year. Dump them, clean them, let them dry and save them for the next year. Great. So I know that you're giving some classes on winter sewing. Can you uh, tell our, our listeners how they could access those? The the two classes that I have, one is December 19th and the other one is February 19th. They're both, uh, one is on a Saturday 
and one is on a Tuesday. And we'll be walking through the whole process. You'll get um, seeds. Uh, the event itself is on Eventbrite, so you have to register on Eventbrite. And if you want, um, you can get seeds. You just have to go on my website, which is www.elementsofnatureusa.com and order your your seeds. And that information is also on the Eventbrite uh, notice. And right now I do have people that are signed up, but it's a good way to just grow more things with less effort. And if you have friends that are interested in winter sewing as well, you guys will have a good way to share amongst yourself without one person trying to, you know, plant 40 containers of, uh, of plants or seeds. I have seen some of the, um, uh, the uh, comments and things on the winter sewing website, it's winter sewn. And there's a winter sewing, um, group out on Facebook where you get a lot of tips and stuff as well but you know it's just anecdotal things that people pop up and ask a question here and there but my class is total training on how to get this thing started how to grow your own how to maintain it and what you can grow uh, through winter sewing and how much you can benefit from this if you're intending on especially if you're in marketing and you're selling your products you can get a lot of your uh, produce or other things started a lot earlier without having a greenhouse. And if you're just a, a home gardener and you like uh, different plants and you don't want to spend a lot of money on those, start them from seed because if you buy adult plants, you're going to pay adult prices for them. So seeds are fairly free in most cases and they will grow to be the same height. It just takes a little bit more time than you would um, normally. But if you have patience, and gardening does require patience, if you have no patience, you won't last long as a gardener because with seeds, they don't do a thing until it's time. Mm -hmm. And that's so true that gardening does teach patience. It does. It is in its own sweet time. And I like what you said about adult plants. Yes. <laughs> I never really thought of them as adult plants, but yeah, growing yes. plants, definitely mm -hmm. growing prices. Um, okay. Of course, one packet of seed, you can grow a hundred radish versus yes. you know, just buying a couple radish plants at a nursery or something that somebody else has raised for you. And oh, yeah. do you do um, one-on-one -on -one coaching? So if somebody had a direct question for you, how would they contact you? They can contact me on my website. I have a Facebook page. Uh, my phone number's on there as well. Um, all three of those ways are, are ways to get to me. And I, I'm, I will respond in, you know, one to two days or earlier. Mm -hmm. It just depends on where I am or from home or from not here or doing other workshops. I, I try to get back with people within 24 hours, but sometimes might be a little bit over, but not more than two days. Well, great, Linda. This is so generous of you to share your time and your Thank wisdom you. on winter sewing and good luck on your growing business. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, hopefully we'll see each other soon at yes. the Washington Gardener Seed Exchanges. Yes. Um, we're still kind of up in the air about um, how those might happen in this year of COVID. But um, stay tuned and stay reading um, Washington Gardener magazine and on our uh, social media channels at WDC Gardener on Twitter and Instagram. And we'll 
post the details up when we have our seed exchange details set and know how many people we can have registered and um, on site at one time. Well, right. thanks again, Linda. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed uh, the talk and look forward to talking to you soon. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Plant Profile, Red Twig Dogwood, Cornus Saracea. If you're looking for a way to add drama and color to your winter landscape, think about the Red Twig Dogwood family, also known as Red Osier Dogwood. This shrub blends in with the rest of your garden during the growing season, but it puts on a real show when the leaves drop off and the cold temperatures settle in. At that point, the bark color starts to brighten and become quite striking amongst the grays and browns of winter. Red twig dogwood, formerly known as Cornus stolonifera, is native to the eastern half of the United States and Canada. While the red twig name makes it sound like a one-hit wonder, this shrub has varieties in a range of high notes from bright yellow to orange to burgundy. Popular cultivars include cardinal and arctic fire. This is one tough plant. It grows from zones two through seven and tolerates clay soils well. Put it in full or part sun. Red twig dogwood benefits from an annual renewal pruning. The best coloration is on the youngest growth. That means you can cut back up to a third of the older stems all the way down to the ground each winter. All those cut stems you collect can be used for flower arranging and for holiday decorations. They look especially good, stuck in an outdoor container and contrasted with evergreens. The Asian relatives of red twig dogwood are the Tartarian dogwoods, Cornus alba. They are native to Siberia, northern China, and Korea, but grow well in our mid-Atlantic gardens. There is also a European relative, the blood twig dogwood, Cornus sanguinea. This is very lovely, and you will find stunning cultivars like Arctic Sun and Winter Flame widely available at local garden centers. Read more about red twig dogwoods in the winter 2009-10 issue of Washington Gardener magazine. Red twig dogwoods, you can grow that. For this week's What's Blooming in the Garden, I thought I'd talk about the hidden world that's revealed when you clean up the garden at the end of the season. As the leaves drop off the trees and the freezing temps shrivel up my perennial foliage, things are slowly revealed in my garden. I found an American robin's nest in the crook of a branch mere inches from the pedestrian call button on my busy street corner. Now open and naked to the world, I cannot believe it existed in such a hidden yet exposed location. This might be the same robin who follows me when I weed and plant around the garden each spring and summer. 
staying just inches from my heels, waiting impatiently to dive onto any revealed worms and grubs. I cut the base off of the English ivy vine that was snaking up an old oak tree. A few weeks later, the top of the vine started to thin out and die back. I looked up to check on its progress and saw several pairs of eyes staring back at me. A raccoon family was none too happy about my exposure of their once sheltered tree spot. Cleaning out my community garden plot, I found the unmistakable fluffs of rabbit fur. A mom bunny had made a cozy little den in the midst of my asparagus patch. That explained the repeated nibbling to death of all my green bean seedlings this year. They say there is a hidden world beneath our feet in the soil, but that is only the tip of the wildlife habitats and secret worlds all around us. Happy gardening. Sensational or stinking it up. This is the time of year that our homes and gardens are full of rich experiences for all the senses. It's also the time when those of us with sensitive sniffers are driven to distraction by the overwhelming din of competing fragrances in our environment. Sensational scents that I love outdoors, like pine needles, become cloying and obnoxious when formulated as a bathroom spray or a candle. Then there are the paper whites. <sighs> so lovely, but pungent enough to cause migraines. The worst are the common Ziva, but I find the alternative varieties almost as annoying, yet I still pot them up and use them every year as a matter of habit. I attended a holiday green workshop where English boxwood was used, and I was appalled to learn the arrangements would be donated to a local home for seniors. Can you imagine waking up to that cat pee stink on your bedside table each morning? Although for some, the smell is a welcome reminder of a childhood spent playing amongst the hedgerows. Love them or hate them, these scents of holiday plants bring back memories and trigger warm feelings. May your holidays be filled with fragrance. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy dash gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener Magazine. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.